Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Much to discuss here. Going to finish up our mailbag. We got over 100 questions that were really good, so we wanted to hit a few more of those. But first, we're going to talk about the game that we just did live for the NBA cast, a 107-104 Clippers victory, some heroics down the end. Boston led by seven with 221 left. Clippers came roaring back. They took a three-point lead, and then Jason Tatum with a ridiculous shot, breaking the ankles of Paul George, perhaps with a little bit of a shove off i didn't think it was that bad hits the three out on him to send it into overtime and clippers took a five point lead there and eventually were able to stave off a couple of celtics attempts at tying the game what stuck out to you the most uh, about these overall performances though well this was the first game that the clippers had both paul george and Kawhi leonard and, and you saw moments of the destructive defensive potential there i mean Kawhi blocking the last shot is a part of that but also just having the luxury of having players like mo harkless and patrick beverly hawking ball hawking could be a real benefit but it wasn't uniformly strong for them on that end i thought boston their defense looked great through a lot of the game and I mean, it was, to me, this in terms of intensity, this was the closest thing to a playoff game that I can recall ever seeing in November. They they were playing so hard. Yeah, it, it was really a lot of fun. The first half, both teams were just really into each other. The defensive communication overall was outstanding for both squads. I think the biggest thing that stuck out to me was there just you now Kawhi was coming back from injury as his first game with Paul George, but there just wasn't a place on this Boston defense defense for them to attack that well and when they did try to go after walker they're able to switch out of it they're able to double team uh, eventually i thought the clippers down the end were able to take advantage of boston's aggressive pick and roll defense with their center tice and that's what got patrick beverly three open corner threes in the last eight minutes or so of the game including overtime but i thought the celtics made it really difficult on the clippers Kawhi didn't have his best game he's coming back from that knee contusion and certainly he can have a better game than this but they made it pretty difficult on him i thought Absolutely. And I mean, another example of that was on the last possession of regulation, Marcus Smart was on Kawhi and Kawhi didn't even try to press in the lane for a better thing. Maybe that was fatigue and a bunch of other things in place too. But Kawhi, the single best guy at moving players to get into the space he wants, didn't really do that. And some of that is respect to Marcus Smart, who had a ton of amazing hustle plays. He missed a a lot of threes. He was one of 11 from long distance, but his defense was absolutely fabulous, including and especially that play in in overtime that brought the Celtics back in honestly yeah I mean he is really what's 
making this defense go at this point his crazy activity level his ability to guard virtually any position i mean there was a time when there were certain guys who were too big for him like remember years ago i think it was the 2017 conference finals when kevin love went was able to go right at him but uh love is as good as he anymore but smart did a really good job of guarding him earlier in the season he really is taking on all comers he's also an excellent communicator defensively he's probably their number one guy as far as making sure that they're switching the way that they need to so especially without gordon hayward i thought that the celtics look good uh jason tatum uh, we had, this is now a couple of really nice games in a row for him Absolutely. And I was critical on the 15 and 60 of Tatum's shot profile that he wasn't doing enough going to the basket and at the getting to the free throw line. And through a portion of this game, that was, you know, partially true. He was a little bit more passive in the in the first half. And then third quarter was absolutely massive. 14 points, five of seven from the field, four of five from three. A couple of those were really nice pull-ups too. And overall in the game, Tatum got to the basket seven times. He was six of seven in those circumstances did go one of six for mid-range but then combine that with actually making his threes again he's been a very good three-point shooter five of ten overall in the game from there fueled by that four of five in the third quarter yeah and really if you look at who got the better shots i mean i thought the clippers got the better shots late in the game but overall i mean you remember the celtics missed their first 16 three-pointers then they heated up uh, thereafter but finished at only 27 percent 12 out of 45 clippers 17 out of 45 uh, but they shot a mere 46% from two uh, and league average two-point percentage is like 52, 53%. Um, so I'd be very interested to see what it looks like when these teams match up. I thought uh, Kemba Walker really was completely shut down by the Clippers. They tried high pick and roll with him. He was dribbling into traffic. Their hands were just too good. Uh, Evicha Zubac did a really nice job on Walker. He got beat once early, but then stopped him two or three more times. I did think that maybe they should have gone back to more pick and roll with walker late when they just didn't have anywhere to go uh because yeah, Mar- and Marcus Smart was forcing up shots in that window so yeah. it's not like it's not like they were turning down those Kemba base things for good looks they weren't really getting much right and, and I mean Walker should be able to eat when they're not trapping him when they're trapping him then you got what you wanted you got two on the ball yeah I mean that's um, something the Clippers took advantage of later on in the game uh yeah co- but, but but last thing on Walker sure. though I mean he's not Kyrie Irving I mean he's been so much better defensively than Irving I mean he really tries hard his lower offensive load is uh freedom up for that but it's just if he doesn't have a screen it's difficult for him to create shots he doesn't have a, a ton of size uh, to just beat his man one-on-one he's not going to get into the mid-range and pull up at you and you can take the ball out of his hands but they have other scorers as well so it's not the end of the world uh so a a bigger picture thing that i wanted to bring up and the part of this is the benefit of doing the nba cast and so i'm thinking of all the analysis that we put out during the course of the game was that in the early going boston was able to overcome that zero for 16 they actually the first three that wanamaker made gave them the lead in the game was through a heavy advantage in the possession game so early on boston was not turning the ball over the clippers were turning it over a ton i think they had 10 turnovers in the relatively early going and boston was killing the clippers on the offensive glass interestingly over the scope of the whole game they they, those two things didn't equalize but they got a lot closer the final turnover margin was 23 to 17 in favor of the clippers and then the offensive rebound margin was 18 to 14 those are both advantages that helped overcome the 12 of 45 but they weren't as strong as they were early in the game that helped get the clippers more shots and then eventually the win yeah and tice uh he had seven offensive rebounds but a lot of those were kind of ineffective 
effectual tips at the basket. He had some other tips out from the basket. Patrick Beverly, four Chicago point guard offensive rebounds, and four of seven from three. I believe that each of his threes was set up by Paul George, uh, who led the Clippers with 25 points in 37 minutes, uh, also had eight assists. Which also led the team. Yeah, yeah. His uh, And we saw that Leonard's passing has improved this year. He did not really have the distribution game going three assists, five turnovers for him. And, and he, George, and Lou Williams combined for 17 turnovers themselves. That was, uh, as you mentioned, a big part of what kept the Celtics in it. Uh, but George has looked pretty good. I, and I think just defensively what he's able to do as far as wreaking havoc off the ball and then still being able to get back to his man on a closeout he's just about unparalleled in the NBA for that skill and it was a reminder tonight for me of how useful it is for the Clippers to have other players who can defend primary ball handlers because then you can get that ability out of Paul George if it's a bigger guy Kawhi Leonard can take that just like he did on Giannis in the playoffs if it's a smaller guy Patrick Beverly Mo Harkless that that is a real luxury for the Clippers and part of why I've been so bullish on their conceptual ceiling they're not there yet for various reasons adjustments load management Landry Shaman not playing but you can see the kind of the inklings there one of the other parts of this the story of this game which for me is the the most enjoyable game so far of the season we're a little bit over a month in even though there were these just insane video reviews we're just there's some really genuinely weird plays like one of them was Marcus Smart throwing an alley that got into the basket by by Montrez Harrell. Like, that's just a genuinely weird yeah. thing that happened. You can ask all the courtside fans who are uh, sitting there in the first half just receiving a bunch of passes <laughs> yeah. about the weird plays as well. Yeah, that was there too. And then... Uh, I haven't seen enough replays yet, but something that I fixated on during the NBA cast was it looked like what opened things up for the Clippers was looked to me like a missed call where there was an air ball that Kemba Walker recovered and put up in enough time for it to not be a shot clock violation. However, his shot was an air ball too from what I could see, and then that should have led to the shot violations that are actually called because the Clippers did not control the ball then, and instead that is what led to the kick ahead by Kawhi to Lou Williams for the open threes the other thing though a couple of controversial calls Brad Stevens got a technical after Kemba Walker tried to take a charge and transition on Montrose Harrell I thought the overhead view showed clearly that it was a blocking foul I've been wrong on that before I also thought that the challenge that Stevens had where Tice got called for a foul and Paul George the only contact with them was just putting his forearm into his stomach and they called a foul on Tice Stevens with a oh, I thought it was a great challenge how could he possibly lose this and I guess uh Tice got called for fouling George's forearm with his stomach because they upheld it which I thought was absolutely insane I mean that should have been a turnover instead it was two free throws that was a big part of that Clippers comeback well and I believe that was Tice's fifth foul which ended yeah. up not rearing its head because he finished with five but it absolutely could have and, and maybe it made him less aggressive defensively you know there are there are these other kind of spillover effects it was also interesting to see how these coaches used their bench players yeah Brad Stevens went with Ennis Canner and Robert Williams at different moments at center. Canner came in, I believe in both halves, but definitely in the second half as the first center off the bench. And then Williams got some spot minutes. Wanamaker had a significant role and was a significant part of their success. Played 27 minutes, 14 points. That's probably a career high for him actually in the NBA. Yeah. And two of four on both twos and threes got to the free throw line, had some nice assists. And I just thought he would, you know, they, they ran some Wanamaker, Kemba Walker minutes and that, that looked pretty good. He was aggressive, got into it with Patrick Beverly a couple times.
couple times, which was pretty fun. And then this was the first game for Doc with Paul George and Kawhi. So we wondered who was going to close, who was going to play minutes. Lou Williams still played a ton, 37 minutes, 27 points. And then Magruder, Harrell, Jermichael Green got reliable minutes. And then that was really about it. And Zubac still got the start. They went big with Zubac and Moharkless in this one. Yeah, I thought they actually looked better for a lot of the game with Zubac out there. Though they did go with Harrell and Lou Williams in the closing lineup. And Lou was their best offensive player for a lot of the night. He started off missing three-pointers, but he had a couple of key ones late. And the Celtics really were not able to attack Williams that successfully. As a playoff series went on, that might change. But you know, Harrell did a pretty decent job defensively also uh now the celtics maybe despite their lofty ranking may not be the greatest offensive team and they also were missing maybe their best offensive player in gordon hayward so uh, lots to be seen here for the celtics tice closed the game but he was negative 17 and i thought Cantor and robert williams give him good minutes but it's clear that stevens trusts the non-screwing up uh, of tice and he was excellent on the offensive glass but i I think he's just overall just a little bit too stopgappy he doesn't actually provide enough especially defensively in terms of playmaking i think williams is so talented you hope he can get in there but he's a little unreliable at this point in cancer while they did a good job of hiding he only really had one play where he got beat up in pick and roll defense i think there's still a trust issue there as well defensively and that was a criticism i would have levy on doc rivers in this there were a few times where they called post-ups for montrez harrell with ennis Kander guarding him that's the thing ennis Kander could actually defend and montrez yeah. harrell not the greatest post-up guy in the world especially when he doesn't have the physical advantage so attack Canner in the ways that Canner can be attacked. And this is not exactly rocket science considering Canner has been in, on impactful teams and impactful moments in, in his career, you know, including the Blazers last year, but also, of course, Oklahoma City. And I wonder how creative this Clippers offense is going to be. Another thing that was notable to me as a reminder is that they don't really have a ton of guys capable of keying a pushed pace. You know, they have players who can... Those being the Clippers? The Clippers, yeah. yeah. So, you know, Kawhi doesn't want to play super fast. Paul George pushes it periodically. Patrick Beverly doesn't really have that type of vision. He has the intensity, but he doesn't really have the vision. Lou Williams isn't that type of guy. And it's not like that's something Shamit can bring it as a like as a guy streaking out, but he's not going to be the initiator. Yeah. I, so, I thought they missed him tonight. I thought they did too. And I, I think that Boston deserves a lot of credit for getting back, but the Clippers also just weren't really pushing pushing it. And that, you know, there will be nights when their offense stagnates and it can be a nice way to generate some easy buckets. And speaking of that, think about all the buckets Boston generated on back cuts in this game. Yeah, the, they had that one from Tatum uh, that got him back into it late. There, where yeah, if if you're going to inbound it from the baseline for a quick two in less than 0.5 seconds, I'm more in favor of that than I normally am. Um, last thing in closing, R.I.P. Daniel Tice's head. Oh my goodness. Yeah, Kawhi yeah. just Kawhi just detonated. And, and I mean, it wasn't like Tice was perfectly set, but he just just right on his dome. Yeah, I mean, you got to, if you're going to try and block Kawhi, you better get your chest on him pretty far away from the basket because his hands are so strong and he has such a long reach and he's so strong to go through your chest that you are just going to get dunked. I mean, he got Giannis a couple of times in the playoffs last year and uh, you could tell he he was feeling a little bit better uh, coming off of that knee contusion. So the other day, my wife uh, opened up our cabinet. We have like a bunch of supplements uh, and protein and she's like, ooh, what's this? Uh, 
collagen like that really helps your skin right i'm like uh yes uh, in fact your skin hair nails and connective tissues are all made from collagen i am about to turn 40 but once you turn 30 generally speaking your body naturally slows in its production of collagen so that's why ancient nutrition created their multi-collagen protein actually just threw some in a protein shake about a half hour ago recording this part at least during the day and i was reminded that is a flavorless powder you can just take it in a glass of water you can even add it to your coffee i just threw it in with uh, another protein shake uh, that i like to use and i use it because since it supports healthy skin joint health always a problem for me a healthy gut and healthy nails instead of one to two collagen types ancient nutrition's multi-collagen protein features five and it's made from four food sources beef chicken fish and eggshell membrane all from non-gmo pasture-raised cage-free and cruelty-free sources it contains nine grams of protein and zero grams of carbs or fat it's the one multi-collagen protein praised by better nutrition women's health and more right now get ten dollars off at ancientnutrition.com using the familiar promo code capspace easy to remember because we talk about it all the time here on the program a special offer for our listeners, simple way to support the show and get $10 off at ancientnutrition.com with that promo code CAPSPACE. Once again, ancientnutrition.com, promo code CAPSPACE to let them know that you came from us. And now we'll do some content that came from you, our listeners. On Twitter, we had so many good mailbag questions that we wanted to hit a few more of them. Where would you like to start, Mr. LaRue? There's an interesting one from Pace and Space. Is there a foreseeable end to the pick and roll space the four era? And then there's kind of a second question, which is, or are uh, big immobile back to the basket bigs truly finished? Can those type of players hold hold draft value as stars and all that could brought up Udoka Azubuki, Verdi carry their few back to the basket bigs in the 2020 draft classes. Things look right now. And my basic answer is for the first question is no. I, I mean, I think that the the pick and roll part might adjust, but the, the idea of spacing the floor being uh, an objective good, I think is just a part of the game now. I think that is, you know, three points are worth more than two, all the other spillovers. However, that does not mean you pursue that at the expense of everything else and that players who are good enough at other things will be not useful, marginalized, whatever. And so I think the way that I would phrase this is the threshold for non-shooters, whatever it is that they do well, is much higher. You have to be good at a lot of things or super, super good at one or two things in order to make it work. So... There might not be as much space for a Vernon Carey or a Udoka Azubuki, but if they can be as good as Rudy Gobert, for example, or Embiid, you know, his spot offensively and defensively within the space and pace and space here is interesting. Those type of guys, you can make it work that way. And there are systems like Terry Stotts that can use more traditional bigs. It's just that you have to be really good to make earn a spot. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think uh, Azubuki or Kerry are that good at the stuff that they're supposed to be good at to really fall into this conversation. I haven't seen that much of either of those guys, but from what I have, I'm not incredibly impressed so far. However, I mean, look at the centers who are really good right now. And Carl Anthony Towns has a post-up game. Joel Embiid has a post-up game. Nikola Jokic has a post-up game. And those are probably your three best offensive centers in the league. And I don't know how much you want to say those guys are immobile. I think Jokic probably falls into the immobile care category defensively. I mean, everybody has got to get out on the floor and move their feet more in this era. 
but you better be really really good offensively because generally this is something we've talked about for a long time being a good post player the strength required to do that and the size generally doesn't correlate with being good on defense and so you as you mentioned you better be really really good at that offensive stuff and so you know do you want to say Joel Embiid is immobile I mean he can switch a little bit he's he's obviously has great instincts he's huge he's a really good defensive player but if you're talking about guys who are just straight post up don't shoot outside of 10 feet I mean maybe your best analog there is you know a Hassan Whiteside or an Ennis Cantor type of guy I mean a lot of it depends too on whether you can shot block right I mean if you have just this Cantor sized body but you also can't block shots then that's an issue as well you know maybe like an Evita Zubach comes to mind as well but generally if you can't shoot it's going to be pretty difficult to play you especially on an elite team so uh I wouldn't say those guys are finished but there's a reason that a center has not been the centerpiece of a championship team in quite some time and those guys have to really be elite defensively or you know, amazing offensively and have a high skill level as well and, and another point to to bury this home this same threshold applies to non-centers as well you know if you, the players who can't shoot reliably have to be able to do a lot now one of the ways of resolving that for some of them is putting the ball in their hands we've seen that work to varying levels of success with a lot of guys and some of those non-shooters are hopefully becoming better shooters Giannis notably among them but I think we're getting to the point where the Michael Kidd Gilchrists of the world are going to be in even more jeopardy than the than the bigs because there are fewer things they can do especially if switching systems become more prevalent which I'm not super sure about but those types of players the reluctant and bad shooters whether they're centers or not i think are going to have a really tough time of it for the foreseeable future things can change but honestly i don't really see that changing anytime soon yeah it's a good point about the kid gilchrist the hollis jefferson types because your problem there is not only that they can't shoot but you probably have to play them next to a center who odds are and on most teams is not gonna be a great shooter either um truth serum 707 how would you rank a Carmelo and Whiteside front court? I think this is a, a good opportunity to just talk about Carmelo's debut with the Blazers. Uh, I tweeted this very early on, which was the fact that they ran the first two plays for him did not bode well for his tenure. And indeed, four of 14, I think it was about 25 minutes, had five turnovers as well. And oh, big surprise, where, stop me if you've heard this before, he was like negative 20 in a game his team lost by 10. So uh, the, the minutes when he was out there, it wasn't all his fault. Uh, cost him. And I thought it, he looks like he's in shape. He, he showed the ability to create some separation, but like, you know, they're running just like ISOs for him on the block against Brandon Ingram. I mean, that's just a no hoper with where Anthony is athletically at, at this point in time. You know, maybe you get a mismatch for him. Uh, he can go through guys. They thought that he should have gotten some more fouls at the rim, but you know, he can't jump at all anymore, which is a, a problem. There's a reason his foul rate has declined massively since the time when he did get to the foul line and earned those fouls all the time. And then defensively, certainly looked like he was trying to some degree, but he provides very little on that end. We know that. So, uh, and then throwing in Hassan Whiteside, yeah, not a ton of mobility, not a ton of defensive intelligence if you have anybody who can run a four or five pick and roll you're just going to destroy that as well they went under on on one of those uh, where mel got caught in a guy on a switch in transition and uh 
I forget who it was that just banged it. Oh, it was Drew Holiday who just banged a three when Melo. You're not going to go under a screen on Drew Holiday when Hassan Whiteside is the guy or expect him to switch. I don't know if he went under or thought they were switching, but uh, yeah, I I don't think it's going to be too good. I mean, I, I thought that Anthony, all he has to do is be better than Hazonia or anthony tolliver to help them but if the way he thinks they're going to help them or or the way they think he's going to help them is throwing it to him and letting him go to work granted dame lillard was out in this game but nonetheless uh that didn't bode well and in fact uh not a great start for him despite the positive vibes i'm happy you brought up dame not playing because i do think that's a reason why i'm a little bit more optimistic that stats will use mellow better is that lillard should be the focal point of their offense and cj you know whenever it's not dame and so that also brings the question of what are you going to really use mellow for but it served to me as an example of how an easy to exploit defense just can make another team's eyes light up and you know the Pelicans, some of their struggles this year, I mean, a lot of their struggles have been defensive and then another section of their struggles have been because they weren't healthy. And so some of their best players were not on the floor, but the quality of shots that they were getting for a lot of the, a lot of the game, especially when Melo was in, that was striking to me. And yeah, against a bad defense too, by the way. Right, exactly. And so, and remember Jackson Hayes is starting at center. This is not the, even the prime Pelicans that we were really excited about the start of the year. So, you know, they they looked to me, they looked good offensively. Uh, posted about a 115 offensive rating overall in the game, not just in Melo's minutes. I would guess that it was higher when Melo was on the floor than when he wasn't, and that's not obviously all his fault. But I think it's, again, hard to quantify, and I hate bringing up things that, you know, bring untestable, but the confidence that you can get a good shot is incredibly valuable, and I thought that the Pelicans looked like they had that for a lot of the game. All right, here's a, an interesting one. JJ from LA. How would you grade Frank Vogel, Monty Williams, Ryan Saunders, and David Fisdale so far this season? I'll start with Vogel. First off, the good, the defense being basically number one in the league. You have to be very happy about that. Few people saw that coming. I thought they'd be good, but I didn't see that coming. The playing a lot of two bigs together, we may not see that as much now with Rondo and Kuzma back, but I think that has clearly worked. They've relied uh, on LeBron to do a lot of the playmaking. They haven't worn him out too much despite that. Vogel has gotten a lot more defensive effort out of LeBron, uh, and perhaps that's because he has more energy and he's just more engaged. He knows that this team might be a championship contender, whereas he didn't. Uh, he knew that the last team that he was on wasn't. But LeBron is clearly playing the best defense. I mean, he had these back-to-back steals last night that were just ridiculous. He's just shot out of a cannon. But he's also been much more solid defensively. AD is having a defensive player of the year type of season. Vogel's getting a lot out of Dwight Howard. So that's the good. The bad, especially now with Rondo back, I'm wondering what the theory is with the rotation, right? He, he's, he doesn't start Rondo. Avery Bradley is out now too, full disclosure. But he doesn't start Rondo. He doesn't start Dwight Howard. And then he brings those guys in and plays them just like 14 straight minutes at the end of the half sometimes uh how to use kuzma is going to be really interesting he's also not necessarily just trying to maximize rondo in the non-lebron minutes there was an awful stretch at the start of the second quarter against okc last night where rondo and lebron were playing together and rondo just had the ball the whole time lebron just wasn't getting any touches and rondo was just rondoing up the game where they didn't score any points 
But if they did, it sure as hell was going to be assisted by Rajon Rondo. You know, that's like, that. that's kind of how he plays. Um, but overall, I mean, the defensive effort, you can't complain about that. Overall, you'd have to say he's done an excellent job so far. I do wonder, I thought he struggled a little bit with rotation sometimes in Indiana. You remember that the series that got him fired where they were they were going to win that game five on the road in Toronto and we're up 15 going into the fourth and then put a really bad unit out there and Toronto came back and won and they lost that first run series and he got fired um so I do worry about the rotations with him especially because you have some of these about uh these vets who feel like they're going to need to play and there's the McGee Howard thing to manage as well and are you going to play AD at center and Kuzma is a tough piece to fit with LeBron he's got a lot of work to do in terms of the rotations but so far the early returns are excellent I'll talk about Ryan Saunders first um something that has been notable to me about Minnesota's offensive or sorry defensive improvement this year that to me they've just looked better overall on that end is that they're for the first time in a long time they're forcing the right shots you know this is Minnesota so far third third lowest opponent three-point frequency in the entire league top 10 in opponent mid-range frequency and they used to get killed in terms of giving up three-pointers exactly and and I think that's been a big help for them you know the opponent shot luck we'll we'll see how that factors in something else I looked up that I thought was was notable is that I had thought you know going into the season that Covington you know there was that sample size thing that Covington Towns last year the team defended really well in those minutes but he barely played in the season due to injury and so far this year the Wolves have been significantly better defensively when Covington has been off the floor some of that is personnel based just who they have in each lineup but and also they've been good offensively they're 112 offensive rating when Towns has been on the floor I could imagine that getting even higher if they can get a higher proportion of healthy Teague they've missed Wiggins for a couple games all that kind of stuff so I I think it's been pretty good overall you know I I still have questions about whether the Wiggins assance is going to continue and whether relying on him especially with some of his proclivities taking shots will eventually lead to problems the idea being that you know a a even more town-centric offense could be good but overall like especially in the defensive end they've been better than i anticipated so that's a good thing for ryan saunders yeah also uh getting andrew wiggins to to play better he's sadly has been out for a few games here with uh uh, first uh, a death in the family and then an illness but hopefully we'll get to see him back and whether he can take the next step i mean they still can't score with their second unit at all but they don't have a lot of talent on the second unit. I'm not sure that that's uh, necessarily his fault. Uh, he's certainly searching for uh, various other options uh, on the wing. But I like the way they've used Towns. Towns is taking over 50% of his shots from three now, which, I mean, that just, and with the percentage that he hits them, and the fact that you can't switch him because then he'll get down in the post and he's passing more than ever before he's got the ball in his hands more than ever before it still hasn't been quite you know Nikola Jokic level of touches but it's been better than it looked like it would be in the preseason which I like and when you have a center shooting 40 percent from three and taking like nine a game sure opens things up for your offense Monty I think that's got to be an A so far they've fallen off a little bit with injuries to Rubio and Baines in their last couple of games now and they're down to I think seven and six on the season but you know nobody's going to be able to have a good defense with Frank Kaminsky and Czech Diallo and Dario Saric playing center. You know that's what they had to go to because they just didn't trust any of the those other guys. So, but with Baines and maybe Aiton back, I mean they've gotten a ton out of Baines. He's they've really encouraged him to shoot the ball even more, which has been great. Playing Devin Booker off the ball more it has worked extremely well as far as his efficiency he's getting Devin Booker to defend at a much higher level guys like Kelly Oubre and Mikhail Bridges have been out in the passing lanes they're forcing a ton of turnovers defensively 
So, yeah, I got to give uh, Monty Williams uh, and his staff a straight A so far. And David Fisdale. Eh. Can I give him an incomplete? I mean, what what, what were we I, supposed to I don't to? think so. I don't know. Giving a uh, guy an, un- an unwinnable hand is, is a challenge. Yeah, but there's also no theory, no structure to what they're doing on a game-to-game. Well, and, and granted, it, they've had some... Yeah, and bro. not really putting favorable lineups around Barrett. I mean, even if you need to play those guys, give Barrett some time to really shine with some spacing, even the limited as it can be. Yeah, and it's just, they try one thing one game, it doesn't work. They try something else uh, another game, it doesn't work. I mean, there's no... It, it seems very, very ad hoc. Same thing with their defensive schemes. Though, Grant, I think they've defended a little bit better than their talent, frankly. Um, but to be... Like, this team has better talent than to be the number 29, number 30 offense in the NBA. Like, to me, I mean, I mean, granted, the fit is tough, but they do have some shooter, and they've also had point guard injuries. But you know, Wayne Ellington should probably be playing as many minutes as he can handle, just due to the fit with everyone else. Uh, um, for example, and yeah, they could really use Reggie Bullock back uh, as well. Um, they were missing Damian Dotson at the start. Now he's in the rotation. I think he's helped give them a little stability as well as just you know because they need more off-ball players. But no, I mean, I, I think you, would, you can't give him really above a T. I, I don't think that his. Uh, granted, he, he has an impossible hand. I didn't think they would necessarily be much better than this. But I did, you certainly can't say that like his coaching has helped in any way. And also, uh, what you mentioned that if this season is about development you know rj mitchell robinson again who's been injured a little bit but you know those guys aren't being maximized right now question from doug durso is it too early to put luca in the all nba team slash mvp conversation at just 20 years old it seems unbelievable what he's doing at that age the answer to the first part is no it is not too early to put him in the all nba conversation yeah, there he's they're the number one offense and he controls everything for them i mean yeah that's what else do you need besides that to, yeah to say? so so for all nba purposes and forwards especially in the year that kevin durant is is hurt you know not taking one of the forward spots i mean he's it, the argument that he is not one of the six best forwards in the league if we're counting him as a forward is i i would say the argument off the top of my head for that is harder than the argument that he is one so then that that means he's definitely in the conversation mvp gets a little bit tougher because i mean then sample size starts to matter a little bit more like can he continue this also he is not like the strongest defender in this group so well you could make an argument and i would that so far this year luca has been one of the most valuable offensive players in the league he is not one of you know he to me he is not sufficiently good defensively to like be in the argument with somebody like Giannis or even lebron who i think has been meaningfully better defensively so far this year so in the conversation conceptually depending on how you're going to see it maybe but all nba no doubt about it right now yeah, and maybe it is the conversation for MVP. I really have to go through. I haven't been looking that much at like individual stats at the top of the lead, but I mean, 30.8 PER, 612 true shooting, 35% usage. He's a great rebounder, which uh, Rob Mahoney wrote about the other day. Uh, congrats to him on uh, joining the ringer, by the way. And he's getting to the foul line a ton. That foul line struggles, relative struggles at 71%. Now he's up to 80% there. And like I said, like the offense has been fantastic. Uh, for their team so i uh am very very impressed i mean and he's not you know he's not doing it on like crazy three-point shooting he's actually shooting worse from three than he was last year uh here's one though i'll just take briefly from cody wilson is there any indication of performance being affected by after a pd suspension no it's a small sample size i can't remember that many i do remember hito turkulu really seemed to fall off after his you know he that was kind of the end of him as a real relevant player other than that i i don't recall much and it's interesting that this is all young guys well not not wilson chandler but uh 
in terms of Collins and Eaton, it, it'd be really tough to prove that of like, you know, a performance falling off unless they're just like worse than they were last year, which seems uh, unlikely. So no, I, and I think the sample sizes are so small with that, that it would be too difficult to come to a definitive conclusion. But Turk Lou is the one that sticks out in my mind anecdotally. Um, let's take a quick break here and remind you that not only is NBA basketball back, but so is college basketball and all roads lead to the final four and NCAA championship in Atlanta in March early final four this year follow the conference and tournament play with march madness 365 the college hoops podcast that covers the game all year long andy katz uh, i remember reading him back when he was uh, at espn years ago he's been around forever he's seen everything in the ncaa he's now with ncaa.com and he speaks with some of the biggest names in college basketball from the power five conferences to the smaller schools creating waves in the game he's talking both to coaches and players and reporters on the ground with your favorite teams to offer the kind of in-depth analysis inside and coverage you can only get with march madness access he also does cats ranks his weekly power 36 and of course his bracket picks come tournament time listen and subscribe to march madness 365 with andy cats new drop so new episode drop every tuesday wherever you get podcasts all right let's do a couple more here one from kelly Arndt. what are the most realistic trade scenarios for the thunder concerning chris paul and gallinari i don't want to get into specific trade scenarios but i want to lay out the the kind of the big picture here because i think it's really important for thinking about how sam presti is going to handle this gallo makes 22-6 this year chris paul after this season and he's expiring chris Paul after the season 41-4 and 44-2 with a player option which I think he's gonna pick up but <laughs> the but so I think Chris Paul he's not untradeable but he's very 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 hard to trade right now because that's so much money extending out and even though he can still produce it's just it's just a hard thing to to move but Gallo is is notable because of where the Thunder are so not counting their draft pick this year tentatively the Thunder could have about the way I would think about it is they have about you know five to ten million in cap space or they can stay over and if they stay over they have about 30 million in wiggle room before they pay the tax now how far ownership is willing to go into that for a team that probably isn't going to be super competitive is an open question but their best way to add to the asset base and everything else would be to do a Gallinari trade which included taking on some bad money because they have you know after that they have Schroeder coming off the books and and they don't really have that many big value ones unless Terrence Ferguson blows up or some of these other ones they're Generally speaking, the Thunder's books are going to get lighter rather than heavier for the next few years. So that would be, to me, the ideal way to get max value for Gallo would not be to do a straight up, you know, trying to get expiring salary. Remember, he makes a ton of money, so it's very hard for a team to do that sort of a trade. But if they can maybe take on a little bit less for this year, which would then get the Thunder out of the tax as well, which they're going to do anyway, and then add basically take a, a premium for the space for next year. And remember that because they have it in expiring contracts the thunder don't have enough cap space to do this kind of a trade in july they're one of the few teams that should do it now and that's really the the context there and then chris paul maybe he could get traded in next season or if a team is just super desperate maybe in july but my instinct is that it's probably going to be trade deadline next year or the summer that it'll become an expiring contract where you could see him get moved the only thing i'll add to that is i think just chris paul they are not going to give up assets to get off of him and if any kind of positive value even if that positive value is removing a year on his contract and just taking back 
someone who isn't as good as him but the contract doesn't go as far then maybe they start to think about it but they're not going to give up assets to move his salary so well, and, and can i make a point on that sure people propose this a lot andrew wiggins is a frequent example here and what you know the the fake traders i'm not criticizing this is just just a note as somebody who used to do that a lot more actually than i do now is think about what that team in this case the chris paul team is going to benefit how they're going to make their team better with that sort of a move so it does doesn't really get the thunder of the tax it would theoretically give them cap space to work with but how valuable is cap space to the thunder at this point in the in their rebuilding process so it's always good to think about that because remember giving up assets and in some cases conceding failure also making your team worse you know because chris paul is a, a talented basketball player that's it's a hard thing to sell and so if you're projecting out when a team is going to make one of those moves you want everything pulling in the same direction as opposed to different direction a perhaps related question from will harris that's uh at will hair 18 19 6, 4, 7, 4. what assets would portland likely be willing to trade for an average to premium forward well if they wait until december 15th and they're 12 games under 500 probably won't be that bad at that point but it's certainly trending in that direction maybe nothing because they just figure the season is done and we're gonna hold on to these guys we'll get our lottery pick you know kind of warriors it up here uh and or 97 spurs it and we'll come back in and uh try to just come back next year and maybe they could even be in a position where they're moving some of their guys you know along the lines of a rodney hood uh, although he does have the player option so he could veto that uh if they're in it enough where they can at least be potentially making the playoffs yeah i think of a future first round pick i said before the season i thought they're the team most likely to trade a future first round pick this season and you know gallinari type would be who you'd think they'd be looking for uh, although defensively is probably where they most want to improve i mean the big bigger disappointment perhaps for them has been that they're not even in the top 10 in offense right now i mean that's been a, a killer um, yeah that and yeah. The, the, the blazers are also in an unusual spot because they could have cap space they could have cap space next summer basically before cj his extension really kicks in which is 22 and then dames spikes in 21 they have this about 15 to 20 million depending on what hood does possibility for cap space one of the other ways to handle that is to then take on a, a salary you know kind of like i was talking about with the with okc with gallinari take on a player who makes more money for that year and you don't have to pay the luxury tax now do they want to take on a player who makes a lot in 21 22 when they will then be a luxury tax team maybe maybe a little bit of a different conversation but they could theoretically use that cap space now by trading bays more by trading hassan whiteside that would be a way to do kind of the filler salary part of this deal all right last one here steve song at steve song 818 shea versus Dejounte murray who would you rather have moving forward slash who do you guys personally value more uh very clearly to me shea gilgis alexander younger probably as good or better than murray already murray i don't believe he's ever gonna be a good enough outside shooter whereas gilgis alexander has made major strides there uh just in his short nba career he's shown more ability to work on the ball i think he's a better passer he's not quite the defender that murray is but kind of a similar wiry type but at least he'll have some switching ability due to his size as a point guard we haven't seen him play uh with the ball as the the main point guard because they have Schroeder and Paul right now but I, I think you easily would have to say Gilgis Alexander I don't think it's particularly close I don't think it's super close either also because of how you fit those players into a, a successful team so Murray doesn't have the spot up chops to be a, a 
successful off-ball player on a, on a really good team. And he's a wonderful defender. I mean, incredible on that end. But at, at a guard spot, though, that's an incredibly hard skill set to manage because, and the, the Spurs are dealing with this this year. Um, it's actually something I want to talk about in the 15 and 60 when we get there. And squaring that circle, you know, there, there aren't really easy solutions because if you have him off-ball, it's kind of the Ben Simmons problem. If you have him off-ball, then teams are going to sag off and do everything. And if you have him on-ball, teams don't necessarily, he can't make them pay enough to make it work. And with Shea, to me, he has the tools to be potentially an on-ball guy or an off-ball guy, or maybe in kind of the CJ mold, a secondary creator next to somebody good, and then a primary creator on second unit, something like that. And that's a valuable skill set. Even if Shea doesn't become the next great lead guard in the NBA, he can still be a part of a successful team as he already has been. And I think that's an important line of distinction. Also, I like Shea's positional size. Like, I think that you can make that work. He can kind of, you know, I don't, he might not end up being an ace, but he can guard a lot of different guys. So I, I would like Shea and it is entirely possible that DeJounte development changes this. But as we, as I see it right now, I agree with you. It's, it's Shea by a comfortable margin. All right. That'll wrap it up here for today. Thanks for all these awesome questions. We might hit a few more of these even tomorrow because, uh, we got like Ben put these together over 12 pages of questions and that's for people sending in questions on twitter too so these are not long questions so thanks so much to everyone who submitted questions and we apologize we didn't get to your specific question but uh we're glad that people have that much interest in what we have to say also glad that our friends at march madness 365 uh, are sponsoring the show today with college basketball back all roads lead to the final four in atlanta in march join ncaa.com correspondent andy Katz each week for the march Madness 365 podcast where he'll speak with some of the biggest coaching and player names in college basketball andy's got top stories exclusive interviews and bracket picks come tournament time listen and subscribe to march madness 365 wherever you get your podcast at bet 365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every goal every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.